Well, that's what it says in both of the Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Anyone who believes, anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what we believe here. That's what we preach here and proclaim here. Let's pause for prayer. Father, as we embark upon our time of uh, hearing from your word now, I pray, oh God, that you would, uh, as you promise, bring it alive in our lives. I pray that we might not resist it or rebel against your word, but that we might be hungry for your word and respond to it, oh God, as the Spirit of God moves in our lives and in our hearts. We know that the word of God never returns without accomplishing the purpose for which it was put forth. So Lord, we count on uh, your accomplishment today. We count on you accomplishing your purposes among us, and I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you're going to teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're finishing up our series on the truth and doctrine, and today, of course, the truth about evangelism. I just want to take a quick survey across uh, uh, the congregation today. How many of you were, came to know Christ as a result of sitting in a church listening to a sermon? Can, I, can you raise your hands? How many of you came to know the Lord as a result of some friend or family member sharing the gospel with you? Can I see your hands? I think that's big. It's usually about 75% have come to know Christ because of a friend or a neighbor sharing the gospel with them. And uh, the other 25% is spread out over a, a various other things, watching on television, being in church, hearing the gospel, something like that. So um, in the first service, there was quite a large number who had come to know Christ because of uh, being, having it shared with them as a result of a friend or a family member. So we want to talk about the, the truth about evangelism because, to be honest, of all the commands that we're giving in the Scripture, this may be the one that uh, eludes us most or we find most difficult. Uh, we are called upon to go and make disciples, to baptize them and teach them to obey whatsoever things Christ has commanded. And, and Christ himself at his ascension said, um, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the other, uttermost parts of the world. And so the question is, why um, do we struggle so much with this matter of evangelism, and what is the truth about it? Uh, first of all, we, we probably ought to, ought to define evangelism. Evangelism is sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with someone else who doesn't know him. And um, in other words, it's, it's gospel, it's, it's good newsing people. And uh, we call ourselves an evangelical church or part of an evangelical Christian movement because we have a passion in our hearts and believe that people need to know uh, Christ personally. Um, and, and so it is a, it is, um, a mission uh, of Calvary to be evangelical. So what, what, why, are we, why do we struggle with evangelism so much? I, I think perhaps one of the, the big issues is because most of the population are introverts. And when we think about evangelism and sharing the gospel, it means you actually have to talk to somebody. And introverts don't really like talking to anybody. We just like, I can, I can speak for them because I am one. And I, I can't tell you the number of times I've walked by somebody and, and uh, I'm mad at the other side of walking by them because I never said anything to them. And I'm like, why, why did you not say Hello. You could have at least said hi. You could have said good day or something like that, good morning. But no, you plow right by someone, and I'm always fighting with myself. It's like, be, be nicer, be, be friendly, you know? But, but you find that the vast majority of human beings are introverts, and 
and sharing the gospel, sharing the good news is really putting yourself out there and, and uh, it requires some sort of, uh, of passion to, to do that. And, and, um, and so, you know, most of us are the kind of people, we get on elevators and what do we do? We look at the numbers. Because <laughs> God forbid that we might talk to somebody in an elevator, right? We just don't talk to people. And, and uh, evangelism is really about talking. I, I, think, I think we care about the lost, don't we care about the lost? Sure, we care about the lost. I, I think, um, I think we, we believe that, that people need to know the Lord in order to be right with God, don't we? We, we don't think everybody's okay. We, we believe that people need to hear the gospel. Um, I, I think we believe that the gospel matters. I, I, I think we um, perhaps struggle a bit with not wanting to be controversial with people we work with or who, who are in our family or whatever, but... But one thing I guess I, I, I would sort of ask of each and require of each or, or at least challenge each of us is those people that are near to us in our lives, the family and friends and the people who work close to us in, in our workplace, do they know who you are and do they know what you believe and do they know the truth? I mean, have you at, at least made it known to those who you may, you may not have gone door knocking down your neighborhood but but there's hardly a reason for even introverts to not have made certain that all of the people you know in your life that are close to you at least they know the truth about Jesus Christ and um, and so I want to um, I want to talk to you today about the uh, the good news um, by the way the only good news is Jesus we live in a world of bad news and fake news now, and, but we know the good news, and the only good news is Jesus, and the only plan for spreading the good news is us. I mean, Jesus, when he sent it, said, and you, meaning us, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And, and what does it mean to be a witness? I think we ought to define that, because... Some of us think, well, do I need a canned presentation? Do I need to have some special rhyme? Um, do, do, is, there, is there an evangelism uh, script that I need to have? And, and, and Jesus has asked us to be witnesses. So what is a witness? Anybody been called as a witness in a courtroom? A witness is someone who simply tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth with respect to something that they've been an eyewitness uh, um, I, I had an eyewitness experience about or been part of. It's, so if you're called to a court with respect to an accident or, a, or, or some crime that was committed or whatever, you're called upon because you were part of it. You witnessed what was done. And, and so when you go to a court, they don't call you up. You sit down and you, you go mute. That's not a witness. A witness speaks the truth and tells what you see. So if you know Jesus Christ... If you've come to a, a relationship with him uh, and, and he is your Lord and Savior, then you are an eyewitness, first-person account of the truth about Jesus Christ. Witnessing is simply telling the truth about what Jesus has done in your life, about who Jesus is and what he claims to be and, and how that has shaped your life. And each one of us have a story or multiple stories about what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. So that's why Jesus could say to all of us, if you've come to know him, 
you are my witnesses. You are the ones who testify to the truth of my existence and my effectiveness in your life. That's what a witness is. It's not a canned presentation. It's not some special script. It's not a special rhyme. It's a first-person account of what has actually happened in your life with respect to Jesus. So that's what we're called to do. Christ is calling us to be witness. Now, in a few moments, we're going to look at Acts chapter 8, but I want to set the context of where we're heading this morning in terms of the truth about evangelism. There's a lot of places we could go in the scripture, but I picked out one for us this morning. But the book of Acts is, um, is really a summary of how the good news was spread from the beginning, how it got its start. And we find ourselves in the first chapter, or the second chapter, where Peter gives a sermon, and 3,000 people respond to that sermon. Now, that's not witnessing. That's the presentation of a sermon. 3,000 people come to know Christ and are baptized and added to the church. We, don't, we read a couple more chapters after that, and we find out that through the teaching of the apostles, house to house, Another 5,000, it says, men are now added to the church. Now, if 5,000 men are added to the church, that means likely 5,000 women, their wives, and likely could be another 10 or 15,000 children who came to know Christ as well. Because in the culture of the, of the scriptures, it was as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If, if dad came to know Christ, then he led his, his wife to Christ. And as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And, and the children followed along and, and served Christ. So the church was multiplying in massive numbers, incredible numbers, in a very short time. You, you could have had 15, 20, 25,000 believers in Jerusalem at the early stages of the of the. Uh, uh, beginning of the church. Uh, but you know that Christ's commission was to go into all the world and preach the gospel. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. It, it, this was all concentrated in Jerusalem. And so um, the church was being formed and, and uh, there were some leaders being, being uh, chosen uh, the, perhaps the early stages of the, of the, the office of deacon in Acts, chapter, in Acts chapter 5. The Hebraic widows and the Greek widows, the Hellenistic widows were not being taken care of properly. And so they, they called uh, the church to call men full of the Spirit to come uh, forth and lead uh, administratively in the, in the church. And, and a couple of names you're really familiar with, Stephen and Philip. Uh, and, and other names, but they were in particular are highlighted in the book of Acts. And it isn't long before God allows persecution to fall in the church. And the first major act of persecution was Stephen, who gave this amazing sermon about the truth, about the history of, of God's salvation history throughout the Old Testament, and what God was up to, and, and how Jesus is the the culmination of what God was about. And then they killed him. They stoned him. He, mar he was martyred and killed. And um, 
The next in line was Philip who, who went uh, out proclaiming the gospel. But, but we read in the scriptures that the church now was scattered in Acts chapter 8. And so, except for the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem. Now you think about this. Thousands and thousands of people who've come to know Jesus Christ are now being scattered into the smaller towns of Judea and Samaria. Now spreading out. And of course the idea was that the gospel, you know, it's kind of a reverse of what we think happens. Now we think we need to go to the big cities to spread the gospel. But in truth, Acts, the book of Acts teaches us that the gospel spread from town to town in small places. Because the persecutors of the church were evidently too lazy or didn't want to go to the small towns. And so those who were scattered in small towns were free now to preach the gospel. And, and so we, we have this context established. And, um, but what is really fascinating, I think, is, is that some people are saying, well, um, you, you know, how does God save people who are in remote places and maybe they're never going to hear about anything and how does God hold them responsible for knowing the gospel and all of that and uh, Acts chapter 8 really is an answer to that story Acts chapter 8 in particular in particular starting at verse 26 because what you find is that our God finds first of all our God is the one who initiates salvation amen and our God has not forgotten anybody anywhere in the world. And you will see that a person in a remote road on a, on a journey to Africa, even though there were thousands of people coming to faith in Christ, this one man on a deserted road on the way to Africa mattered to God. So much so that he took a, a faithful man full of the Spirit and they intersected and this man came to faith in Christ. That's the setting of this story. And um, I, I want to... Uh, I, I've preached this uh, text before. But I, I want to, to give glory to God. It, so often we take a text like this and we, we make it all about us. We make it all about a formula or a, a pattern or an example or a practical. And, and it is practical and it is an example. It's not a formula. But it is an example. There is no formula to evangelism. That's one thing I've discovered from the scriptures. But this is a tribute to a saving God. And I want, I, I want you to take that away today, particularly. You know, um, when we wonder about people and God's salvation, and is it just, does God just look after people in settings like ours and all of that? No, God has committed himself as a missionary God to extend his offer of salvation to the very ends of the earth and this demonstrates to us as an example of how God cares and how you can be used in the mission endeavor of how much God cares for everybody in the world and seeks to reach them so um, if you have your Bibles this morning I would invite you to look at Acts chapter 8 verse 26 and we're going to encounter a man named Philip and an Ethiopian. And this is not Philip, the disciple Philip. This is Philip, the man full of spirit, filled of the spirit, who was chosen early in Acts to be one of the leaders in the church. This is an early deacon. This is Philip, an evangelist. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, 
goes south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? How can I, he asked, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. It's from Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is, this, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. And this is the word of God. So... Um, I I want to stress there is no formula to evangelism. There is no formula to being a witness. There's no canned presentation. There's no rhyme. There's just the reality of your life and what Christ has done for you. And I want to show you from this text of how uh, very simply this very same situation could happen to us on multiple occasions. So write yourself into this story. I want you to be Philip. And I want you to think about how God can use you in a situation not dissimilar to this to be a a voice of the truth, a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to show you that there are really eight common practices. Again, it's not a pattern. It's an example. There are eight common practices uh, that produce missionary results. And um, the first is this. Talk up Jesus everywhere. You want to be someone who has opportunity to lead people to Jesus Christ? Then talk up Jesus everywhere and all the time. Uh, The people, I have experienced this in my life. The people who are inclined to talk up Jesus seem to be entrusted specifically by the Holy Spirit for intersections with people that God is working on. Um, You will be my witnesses. I want you to notice in in chapter 8, verse 6 through 8. When the crowds heard Philip, heard Philip, and saw the miraculous signs or the evidence of Christ in his life, they all paid close attention to what he said. I'm not a huge fan of that old favorite Christian saying that is preach the gospel and if you have to use words. I'm not a fan of that. 
Use words. There are all kinds of lost people who live really nice lives. In fact, there are a lot of lost people who are nicer than some Christians. That shouldn't be, but that's true. So we can walk around being nice people all we like. You notice here that when they heard Philip and saw the evidence of Christ in his life, they listened to him. Witnesses, you know, you're called to court. You don't just get dressed up in a suit and look nice and be a nice person and go sit on a chair and the judge and, and just look at him and smile and say, hey, judge, you're a nice guy. Yeah, happy day, great day and all that. You don't do that. You, you, hey, tell me something about what you saw. Tell me something about what happened to you. That's what a witness does. Nick, I used your name big time in the first service. So, um, you, you know, Nick is, Nick is one of those guys who um, talks up Jesus everywhere. And I've seen this in his life. Uh, we were on a, a subway together on, uh, one night in New York City. And Nick starts talking about Jesus. And I'm like, Nick, I'm thinking in my mind. I don't say anything to him, but I'm like, Nick, do you know where we are? We're like in a subway in, in New York City at night. And you're going to start evangelizing with somebody. And I'm like, that's who Nick is. And uh, Lynn and I were like, wow, this is so incredibly cool. Nick finds a way to talk to everybody about Jesus. He ta- and, and you know what I've noticed is God brings people, the Holy Spirit brings people who are in some way being worked on by the Holy Spirit to Nick. And, and I, I'm not uh, pumping your tires or anything this morning, Nick, because I know you give all the glory to God, but led a nurse to the Lord this past week. Goes to the hospital, leads a, leads a nurse to the Lord. And, and why? Because he talks up Jesus. And we need to be people who are, are really understand what this means. There's great value in uh, being a first-person te- first testimonial. Advertisers use it all the time. You know, you'll see a husband and wife, they come on TV, oh, my wife, you know, me and my wife, we just got this new mattress. And I guess the guy wouldn't be talking like that. That's kind of... <laughs> but anyway... Uh, Unless he's a, a soprano, but, um, you, you know, that's how great this new mattress is, and everybody loves it, and they, and they, and they buy into it because it's a first-person testi- testimonial. People are interested in if Jesus works for you. I mean, does this thing work? Is this, this, this Jesus Christ, does it mean something in your life? Has, it done something, has he done something for you in your life? And, and there was a great joy in the city. Uh, something missing in most of our lives or too many of our lives. So that's the first thing I noticed. And secondly, I noticed that we need, to be, we need to learn sensitivity to the Spirit. God knows where open hearts are. Um, successful evangelism belongs to those I- I've found who train themselves to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, how does that happen? You'll notice in the text here, it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, and, and later on we find that the Spirit of the Lord suddenly takes Philip away. This is, these are synonyms. The same, it's the Spirit of the Lord. Philip had become sensitive to the Spirit of the Lord. And how does this happen? Well, here's how it happens. The Spirit of the Lord says to, to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, Philip's having a pretty uh, successful ministry in Samaria. And, and cool things are happening in Jerusalem. 
And the Holy Spirit says to him, the Spirit of God says to him, I want you to go to the desert road. It's like, what kind of a tactic is that, Lord? That sounds like a loser idea. Who's going to be on that road? That, that, I could be here. I, I'm having a great ministry here in Samaria. But instead, Philip goes. Because Philip has learned to obey the Lord. And then you read down a little further, and the Spirit of the Lord says to him, I want you to go to that chariot. What? You want me to go to that chariot? Yeah, I want you to go to, up to that chariot, and I want you to hang near that chariot. We're going to find out why shortly. I, I've... I'm pretty well convinced that sensitivity to the Spirit of God grows over time from being obedient to the Lord. As with most things about God, opportunity and boldness begin with a decision to obey. Throughout all of Scripture, we get these same kinds of examples. Go to the desert road. Go to the chariot. Stay, stay near it. Because God knows what we don't know about how he is working. Example of the disciples, when they came back, they were fishing all night, caught nothing. Jesus comes up, he's a carpenter by profession. He tells seasoned fishermen, go fishing. But Jesus, it's the daylight. You don't catch fish in the daylight. They never said this to him. They actually obeyed him and went, okay, if, if you say so, Lord, they'd learned. Because in the Sea of Galilee, with those ancient nets that had the webbing the size of my fingers, if you're fishing for fish in the daylight, they can see that. They're not going into those nets. They had to fish them at night. But Jesus said, I want you to go fishing during the daytime. That's a really odd tactic. It's an absurd tactic, actually. But they do. They do what God says to them to do. Why? Because God knows where the fish are. And it's God who initiates the success of a fishing program. And when God says to do this evangelistically, it's because God knows what he's already doing. And so they go and the nets are full of fish. Surprise, surprise. God knows what he's doing. He knows where the fish are. It wasn't until the children of Israel put their feet actually in the Jordan River that was swollen at flood time that God stopped the river. He told them to go across that river, take the Ark of the Covenant, the leaders are to go first, and they're to walk into the water. And they walked into that river, and they walked in while the water was still flooded, and it wasn't stopped until they actually obeyed God. Opportunity and boldness follow obedience. And so if you were saying to me this morning, I can't witness, it's possible, it's because you're not obedient. It's because you're not first walking and learning to walk in obedience and listen to the Spirit of God and how He's moving you. There's a pragmatic way to do everything, and then there's God's way. And most of the time, God's way isn't the pragmatic way. It's the absurd way, because He wants to get all the glory. When they brought the fish back, it wasn't because they were good fishermen. When they crossed the Jordan River, it wasn't because they had scuba gear on. It was because God did something. And, because, and this man came to faith in Christ because Philip obeyed God. Now, there's a third here. There's a common language that carries across cultures. It's love, humility, and sensitivity to people's needs. Somehow... Philip got himself an invitation into the chariot of this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, I want you to get the picture here for a second. These guys had nothing in common, virtually nothing in common, but they had everything in common as it turns out. But externally, they had nothing in common. We have to assume that this Ethiopian, who is a Gentile, by the way, is a proselyte Jew. 
he's come into Judaism because he goes to Jerusalem to worship. Only a Jew would go to Jerusalem to worship. So he, obviously somehow he's become a proselyte Jew. So here you have this Gentile, proselyte, dark-skinned, wealthy, um, aristocratic African who bumps into this guy walking or jogging beside his chariot. He's like, what's this guy doing? This light-skinned Jewish common man jogging beside his chariot. But somehow, in God's way, Philip exuded to him, I'm convinced, a, a, a sense of love, a sense of humility, a sense of, uh, of caring about the needs of this man. This is the common language, regardless of who you are, and regardless of how cross-cultural uh, you're asked to minister. So master it. The, the simple truth is, the people in our world are, are, are looking for good news. Everything around them is bad news. People are jumpy. They're concerned about, about the state of our world. They're concerned about the future of their children. Donald Trump can just say one thing and the Dow drops 350 points. People are incredibly jumpy today. They're looking for some good news. They're looking for someone who cares about them and loves them and, and comes with humility and, and has a sensitivity to the needs of people. That's required in the, in the, uh, the, the approach to evangelism. Fourthly, there's a very important reason why he got close to the chariot. I mean, God told him to go there. Why did God tell him to go there and get close? As he gets close to the chariot, he hears that this guy is reading from the book of Isaiah. Now, um, you, you're wondering, uh, perhaps, this guy's reading. How did, he, how did he know he was reading? Well, was he looking in the chariot or whatever? No, he says he heard this guy reading from the book of, book of Isaiah. In, in that particular time, that particular culture, when you read, you read out loud. You weren't reading to yourself. So can you imagine getting the go train to Toronto, everybody's reading out loud? But that, that's what they did. They read out loud. And so he was reading out loud, and, and Philip recognized, hey, this is the word of God that he's reading. Now, why is that important? Philip became aware that God was up to something in this guy's life. And that brings me to the fourth point here. Look for ripe fruit. God initiates conversion because the dead can't raise themselves, nor can we raise the dead. It is the work of God. So look for God at work. Too often we, are, we fail at evangelism because we are trying to force green fruit to respond to the gospel instead of being patient. We should be looking for God to be at work. Conversions for the wrong reason are disastrous. Simon the sorcerer just earlier in this text is an example of that. I won't take the time to look there, but you should if you want to. Um, Simon the sorcerer uh, in, in Philip's ministry, uh, it says there in the text in Acts chapter 8, the early part, that, that he was um, a big man in Samaria. He, he was a powerful man because he had magical uh, abilities, magical art, black magic abilities. But then he hears the gospel and he, he's introduced to Philip and Philip demonstrates the, 
the power of the gospel, and in particular the power of Christ's life, and he realizes that this is a greater power. And so it says in the text that he believed and was baptized. But then uh, when the disciples hear back in Jerusalem that the Samaritans are coming to faith in Christ, they send Peter and John to Samaria. They lay hands on the people and they receive the Holy Spirit. When Simon the sorcerer sees this new evidence of the power of God, he's all excited about it and he says to Peter, how much does it cost for me to get the Holy Spirit? And Peter is incredibly distressed. And he says to him in verse 18... Or, not, or 20, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he'll forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. I don't know what happened here, but I do know that somehow Simon made a profession of faith, but not because he was interested in Jesus but rather because he was interested in some sort of benefits he thought he could get because of Jesus. Make certain, be very careful, in evangelism, I've got a couple more points here that will lead us to this, but in evangelism, there are often people who want God because they want to come, get out of a jam, or, or maybe they're sick and they want to get well, or whatever, and so they say, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I want Jesus, but they're not really ripe fruit. Look for God's work in somebody's life, particularly in children's ministries. Do not rush children into making a false profession of faith. Whatever you do, be very careful of your children's worker here. Look for God's work in their lives. Look for God to be moving their hearts. Absolutely tell your children the truth every day of their lives from when they're, they're this small all the way along. Deuteronomy 6, as you're walking, as you're lying down, as you're sitting, as you're on, on the journey, whatever you do, you're talking about Jesus. Of course you are. But don't push them for a decision that God has not brought to ripeness in their, in their hearts. Our job is to be in the vineyard bringing sunlight until the fruit ripens and then pick it uh, for all you're worth. Fifth, start from their questions. See what Philip did here? He says to him something that's really interesting in the original language. He uses a play on words. He says, gnoskes ha anagnoskes. They rhyme together. He actually says to him, do you know what you do not know? How would you like to have that question asked? Do you know what you do not know? And, you know, some people would be very offended by that. Because here's this Jewish proselyte, proselyte to Judaism. He's gone to worship. He thinks he knows some things, but... But Philip realizes that he doesn't really know, and he says, he says to him, how can I unless someone explains it to me? So start from their questions. Tell me please, he says. Who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? You need to know the Lord Jesus Christ yourself so you can start from where the questions are. We have some people who come door to door to our houses. Their initials are JW. They operate under script. If you move them off their script, they're usually completely discombobulated. We should be able to be moved off any script. We should know as witnesses who Jesus Christ is. So we should be able to start from any question that anybody asks. So what question does he ask? Because some people say, you know, that's just what you believe. But he asks the right question, the opening question. Do you know who this is speaking of? 
Verse 34, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? That's the right question. That's the perfect question. And then uh, sometimes you see that Philip began, Philip began, notice in verse 35, with that very passage of Scripture. Often people will say, well, that's just what you believe or that's just what you've been taught by your parents. No, that's what the Bible claims. Trust in God's Word. If you want to be used of God for missionary purposes, trust in God's Word. God's Word is powerful because God is powerful and causes His Word to work in people. So Philip, he starts, he begins right there with that very passage in Isaiah 53 of Scripture and starts to teach him uh, the good news of Jesus Christ. And the seventh point is this, be sure to make it about Jesus. You see what it says here? He began from that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. I I like what uh, W.H. Griffith has said, Christianity is Christ. Um, Too often, we uh, talk to people about God. And we ask people if they know God or they want to have a relationship with God or something like that that's really not witnessing and I'll tell you why because everybody believes in God except atheists the only people who don't believe in God are fools that's what the Bible says Jews believe in God Muslims believe in God Uh, lost people believe in God Satan believes in God. Demons believe in God. We are not calling people to believe in God. We are calling people to trust in Jesus Christ. That's the life-transforming reality. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Philip took him to Jesus We've got to take people to Jesus. That's where the rubber hits the road. That's that's where the fur flies. That's where the challenge is. And Philip took him there. Christ crucified. A confrontation with people's rebellious hearts. A confrontation with people's uh, sinful hearts. A confrontation with people's selfish hearts. That's where we take people. Um, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed Uh, uh, to him against that day. As Russell Moore rightly states, we connect with sinners in the same way Christians always have, by telling an awfully freakish-sounding story about a man who was dead and isn't anymore, but whom we'll all meet face-to-face in judgment. Russell Moore is a teacher at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And then finally... Eight, close the deal. Jesus invited action and response. We are not called by Jesus to dialogue on world religions. That's not evangelism. We are, we are not called to give seminars on various ways of believing things. That's not evangelism. We are called to ask people whether or not they want to choose life. It's life and death. Philip, and and you won't probably see this very often in my uh, teaching, but you'll notice that I have sourced my thought here 
between verses 35 and verse 36. What's between verse 35 and verse 36? Sanctified imagination. Because somehow this Ethiopian asked Philip to baptize him. How did he get to that place? Well, there's possible ways. One, if he became a Jewish pros a proselyte to Judaism, he had to be baptized. So he knew something about baptism. But I'm convinced that in Philip's discussion, which we're not given here in the text, that in Philip's discussion, he told him about Jesus Christ. He told him about Isaiah 53 and how Jesus Christ is the suffering Messiah that is being spoken of here. He told him that Jesus Christ went to a cross and died on Calvary for our sinfulness. And he told him that Jesus commanded us and commissioned us to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey whatsoever things Christ has commanded them. And so as they were driving along in the chariot, he's already come to faith in Christ. He's heard the message of Jesus Christ. The deal is being closed. And he says to Philip, there's the water. What's preventing me from being baptized? And Philip says, nothing. <laughs> You've come to know Christ. Let's get in the water and let's confirm what you have done, what, what God has done in your life. Uh, the truth of the matter is, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, confess Christ as your Lord. Believe in him with your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Uh, confirm through an act of baptism what the Holy Spirit has done by coming into your life and commit yourself to a lifetime of following the teachings of Jesus Christ. And I'm convinced that between verse 35 and verse 36, that's exactly what the Ethiopian eunuch uh, promised and committed to do. Here's some water. He had chosen his lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and he was saved. As we wrap this up this morning, let me just say in conclusion, Satan's strongest opposition is at the gates of hell where the battle for souls rages. Often why we don't want to embark upon this journey that we've been invited to, which brings such glory to God and is such an awesome thing, is because it is a huge battle. And I, I'm, I'm going to speak two weeks on witnessing because I think it's so critical, evangelism, how we handle ourselves. It is absolutely imperative that as a, as a fellowship of Christians, that we set aside our pettiness we set aside our conflicts. We set aside all of the things that don't matter and take on a wartime mentality with each other. To care exceedingly for the hearts and souls of we evangelists, we who are seeking to reach people for Christ, that we pray for each other fervently because our Savior has promised us this, that on this rock he will build his church 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we know that, that we win the victory as we move forward. But make no mistake about it. Satan rages to, to, to continue to hold on to the ground that he has. I'm not afraid of that. I, I don't back away from that, nor should we. But I'm saying that if we think this is some sort of uh, easy go or, or it's, it's just a hobby that we have or, or, or that evangelism and reaching people for Christ will just naturally happen without holding on to Christ in prayer and agonizing and, and, and holding up our brothers and sisters and, and, and making sure we love each other and making sure we're not petty, making sure we put aside all our administrative details and foolishness and all of that kind of stuff and make sure that we are backing each other up in this great endeavor, particularly those who are putting themselves on the front line for Christ. That I think God has called us to. And that's why the Apostle Paul said to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.11, And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. We may not be appointed as an apostle, but we are appointed as heralds. And we are appointed as teachers. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed, he said. Because I am persuaded. I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he will keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. So, when you choose to fight at the front line... Most of the time, soldier up, put on your armor, make sure you pray, and let's go get them. Let's pray, and let's give the crack troops the best of our support as an evangelical church. Our Father, I pray that we would take up the, the call to listen to your word, to be sensitive to the, the moving of the Spirit of God by our obedience to the absurdity of your plans and desires. May we come to realize that we are human and you are God and we don't know and you do know. And you know where and you know when. So, oh God, let us be fishers of men, I pray. For the days are short and the days are increasingly evil and people are not putting up with sound doctrine. People are running to and fro looking for answers. People are filled with bad news and fake news, but they've yet to encounter the good news. So Lord, let us be a good news station, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. My, uh, sort of my um, introduction or challenge or development in evangelism was a result of, of my uncle, my dad's brother, who, who was an evangelist and spent all of his years as an evangelist, was just passionate about lost people. And uh, when, he, when he went home to be with the Lord in 1995, it was a great loss to me, but um, he left virtually nothing behind except... He left his Bible, and I retrieved it, his Youth for Christ Bible. 
And one of the things he always challenged me as pastor to be an evangelist, be, be evangelistic, Rick. You know, he'd send me, he'd, he'd constantly send me virtually the same text in scripture. So I preached it at his funeral, actually. And it really is why he was, why he was so passionate about evangelism. And I want to leave it with you this morning uh, because I know that uh, it meant so much to him and it means much to me. It's Romans chapter 1, and there's, there's three phrases in Romans chapter 1, 14 through 16. And the three are this, I am a debtor, I am ready, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And, and this is a real huge motivational text for evangelism. Do, do we understand that we are debtors to every lost person? God did not save us because there's something special about us, because there's something special in my life, because I deserved it. In spite of who I am, God saved me by His grace. And as a result, every lost person that I look at, I am a debtor to tell them the gospel because I've received it free of charge from my Lord because of nothing that I have done. And so I look at them and I say, I'm in debt to you to tell you the truth about Jesus Christ. And I'm ready. Uh, Paul w was writing here, he was ready, in fact, to die. You find that in Timothy. He was ready to give his life, whatever it took, so that people would come to know about Jesus Christ. I am ready. Are you ready? And the third is this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Are you ashamed of the gospel? I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness first, which is first to last from faith to faith. And the righteous will live by faith. In the righteous, faith in the righteousness of Christ, not in their own righteousness. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no one who comes to the Father but through him. I'm a debtor, I'm ready, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Father, please make this the passion of all of our hearts, O oh God. May we listen for the voice of the Spirit of God, even this week, who said, tells us, go to that road, go to that car, get close to that person, O oh God. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.